Welcome to the third episode of the Circles Off podcast, or maybe the second episode of Circles Off after we we changed our name last week. Uh, Rob Pizzola here, joined by Johnny from Betstamp, uh, as we will work through a, a variety of different topics this week. I will give a little bit of a disclaimer right off the top. We are going to talk about NBA Top Shot, probably towards the end of, of this pod. So if we get there and it has nothing of interest to you, uh, no hard feelings, but it is a pretty big topic of conversation um, in both of our lives right now, as we um, are both pretty active on the platform. Uh, and I think we have some differing views on where this might be headed uh, as well as as other NFTs as well. So uh, we will talk about that. Uh, but first and foremost, this is a, a sports pod uh, as well, a sports betting pod. And uh, we do have some other topics to to cover on this week's show. But uh, Johnny, I'll bring you in here. How, how are things going this week? All good, Rob. Uh, good to be back on the pod. We got some great feedback last week. So just want to thank everybody for listening and keep the feedback coming. If there's anything, you know, flow wise or style wise that we can improve on. Uh, I'm a big rookie in the, the podcasting game uh, and I don't do much media. So, you know, any feedback's great. And thanks everybody for, uh, for taking the time to listen to the past two episodes. What have you been doing the, the last week or so? Are you are you mainly involved in like an NBA props right now? Are you doing any college basketball stuff or anything? Um, not too much college basketball uh, props right now. Uh, it's it's a bit of a weird market. It's tough to get uh, it's tough to get anything on college basketball props. It's usually not worth the uh, the squeeze. Right now, it's full NBA prop season um, every single night and getting into some prep work for um, other stuff that's coming. So we've got a lot of work. Um, you know, working on bed stamp still every single day and trying to grow that platform as well. But uh, yeah, it's been good. It's full, full swing for NBA props. It's a big slate almost every single, every single day and um, NHL as well. been experimenting there uh, for the first time this year and that's going okay. How's your, uh, how's your stuff coming? Yeah, it's, it's going well. Um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with the way NHL is going this year, at least the process and the amount of volume that we're getting as well, which has been, surprising to me i guess because i I figured with these teams playing each other back to back sometimes three times four times in a row you probably wouldn't be finding as much value across the board Uh, but that hasn't been the case um so volume has been good results have been good it's been a grind man i can't i can't lie to you like you you kind of have to be available at all hours of the day because there's just stuff that's coming up like there's no consistency relative to past seasons, past seasons, you have your morning skate, you have a long layoff over the course of the day, really no news coming in. But now 5 PM Eastern uh, is the deadline for coaches to put people on the taxi squad and COVID lists and stuff like that. Sometimes you get late scratches and warmups. So um, it's been a grind. And then obviously I've taken to top shot as well. So I've been like wasting away a lot of time on that platform as well. And and sifting through the marketplace. So I've been grinding, man. It's been a, a week of just a ton going on. And now I have like this, this been the better competition on my plate as well, which is like, oh man, I, I can't believe I'm going, like it's going to happen, but I don't even want to think of the rules, like how to or- organize this competition. Like I'm going to have to have, spend half an hour with my tortoise every day, like getting this guy to eat so that he can pick games like what a what a nightmare man this has become i'm fired up for that i think uh we got to get some rules in place he said he's down to do it let's uh let's fire it up well of course of course he's down to do it. like every time i mention his name whether it's on this pod or on twitter it's growing his following like it's 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 a huge win for him even if he loses to the tortoise he's going to get enough recognition out of it that it is it is what it is but like I'm getting messages from everyone. It's not Ben that's harassing me. It's it's people in my DMs text messaging me like, when is this going down? How am I going to bet on it? And whatever. And it's like, man, I just don't even want to think about it right now. Like, <sighs> we, When it does happen, hopefully this, we can try to even set up for this weekend or, or next week, whatever we want to do. But we should, uh, we should contact a couple of bookmakers and see where we can get some odds posted. I think that honestly, I think that's going to happen regardless. I've I've seen people tagging like Pat Morrow and and um, Dave Mason and and what like I'm sure there's going to be some sort of props up or something along those lines to for people to bet on it. I'm kind of thinking we should do something for March Madness. Like that's my thought right now. It's a pretty easy 
organized schedule, something like where Ben picks five games a day and the tortoise has to pick the same games. Um, so I, I, I don't know, like how else am I going to have the tortoise pick games? Like there's got to be some sort of structure, right? Um, I don't know if, if anyone has ideas, like please shoot them my way, but I'm trying to figure this out. And every time I sit down to think about it for five minutes, I just like procrastinate and put it off. It'll be hilarious to see if, uh, I mean, I guess if bet online posted or, or, uh, who, uh, whoever posted, it, it'll be hilarious to see which way the steam comes in. So if, if it opens, let's say minus 20, minus 20, and then let's say that your tortoise gets steamed, that's going to be all time. It, it would be pretty good. I, I do like, I've been tracking Ben's uh, Patreon record in the last week and it, it's, it's almost like impossible to lose as much as he has over the course of the last week, which like, I kind of feel like he's going to catch a heater at some point, at, at least something where he's not losing like eight units every day. And, you know, poor, tor- poor Tortellini is going to have to wear it on the chin in, uh, in his competition. But um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get it done. I think there's enough demand right now that I'll figure out a way. I just like, man, I, I'd really honestly, I, I'm, pl- I'm pleading for someone who wants to take over the organization of this. I'll follow along with whatever you want to do. But like just having to deal with it on a day to day, I got so much stuff to worry about. It's just like so overwhelming so much so too many nfts to buy <laughs> exactly uh so for all for everyone who tuned in for uh, betting related purposes the topic we're going to cover today is uh hedging bets so it's going to be a wide variety of like you know first off you know what is it how to do it when should you shouldn't you should you ever do it and we we will give basically our thought process behind if we've ever hedged or what we would look for in terms of things like that and the reason we wanted to talk about this is I know Rob gets all the time and it's a question that we've been getting a lot as well is like, when do I maybe arb out of something? When do I play back? If there's, if it's a future bet or if it's a, you know, regular game. And a lot of people are asking this with the kind of expectation that there's one right answer. And really what we want to kind of talk about is the different scenarios, the different scenarios, the different situations in which it might be worth it or not worth it. And with that, I'll toss it over to Rob and you can kind of go over a couple points and then I'll, I'll let you guys know what I think. Yeah, I think the first point, like this is the most common question I get on Twitter DMs. Without a doubt, it's I have this bet. Would you hedge it? If so, how much would you hedge it for? And the response I always give is that hedging is a matter of personal preference because it is. What I would do in some situation is very different than what you would do, Johnny. It's very different than what you know, John Doe would do that. There are, there are different circumstances, uh, around each single one of us. Now there is a mathematical way to do it. That is the proper way in the long term. but there are other things that need to be considered. And for one, I always say this to someone, but if it's life-changing money and you're going to, you're not going to sleep at night, if this bet loses, then yes, go ahead and hedge it. Like you're going to lose some of your expected value from that original wager, which is a really good wager, but for the peace of mind and for your own mental sanity, like people ignore the mental health aspect of, of these types of things sometimes and, and the life situation of these types of things. And they're like, oh, you're an idiot for hedging that. Well, no, I mean, like everyone is in a different financial position. Um, so I think that is something that has to be factored into the equation in a lot of cases. Some people are just looking to guarantee themselves some type of money. Um, when it's not like life-changing money, it's not really going to impact their day-to-day in any way. And I think it's wrong in that type of scenario. I think you're just better off letting your bet ride rather than placing a negative EV wager in order to guarantee yourself something. Because at the end of the day, when you're placing a future, uh, an outright, whatever you want to call it, um, it, and it's a positive expected value one, if you keep doing that over time, you're going to win. Now, it might take a long time for you to realize that gain because a lot of these futures are are long shots. But with every hedge that you do that you perform, that's a negative expected value bet. You're killing your EV in the long run. So I think th- the biggest thing for me is it's a matter of personal preference for one, and for number two, you need to know that every additional wager that you place is likely not a plus EV one just so that you can kind of guarantee yourself some money. It's in your best interest not to do that if you can avoid it. 
Yeah. So good points there, Rob, more in, re- in relation to futures bets. And I think what Rob means is like, let's say you had a huge future bet on, let's say the Green Bay Packers preseason and they make it all the way up to the NFC championship game. And you're worried about what to do there. And like Rob said, if it's life-changing money, then that's a different story. And, and maybe, you know, take some profits and stuff like that. I think other scenarios we can get into are just like day-to-day hedging and, and why this is probably not a good idea. So for example, if you bet a team, um, let's say, for example, you're betting an NBA game tonight and you've got the Raptors and you bet them at, let's say, a pick them and some injury news might come out and some things change. And then now all of a sudden the wraps are minus four and you've got an amazing bet. You got four points, closing line value from zero to four in the NBA. Um, people would ask, oh, could I play the other side? Should I play the other side, get a plus four and now hope to middle the game or hope to, you know, arb out a little. And in reality, what people need to consider and what I would personally consider when doing this is both sides of those bet needs to be both sides of the bet need to be plus expected value in order for me to make them. So the Raptors bet that you have is a great bet right now. And you should almost basically take the expected value from that and put that in the bank. So that bet, you already won that bet in terms of expected value. You've got your expected value, set that aside. Do you want to place a bet on the other team facing the Raptors at plus four? If you think independently that that bet is a good bet, then I think it's something you should place. So situations where you might make the game, uh, you know, Raptors minus two and you bet them at pick them. And now it's overcorrected to plus four, according to your eyes or your model. And you might have an edge on both sides there's something where you can play both. But outside of that, it's uh, it's really difficult to make money in the long term by playing both sides of a game uh, in, in almost all scenarios. So that's one where I'd be you know cautious of if I was the average better. If you've got closing line value, don't play it back because there's going to be times when you don't get closing line value and you don't have the opportunity to play it back. And now you've got a negative EV bet with nothing to play back on. And this, this goes for, you know, live in play as well. Like everything in regards to that, you need to make sure that each bet is independently plus expected value. Yeah. I mean, I I think just to add to that, and it's probably something that you wanted to touch on too, Johnny is, is the fact that when you are playing it back, you're paying VIG again. So you end up paying VIG twice on the same game and that needs to be accounted for as well. But yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. If if you're looking for a a hedge on a, a single game, um, or to play back on a single game, you're, you're always going to be looking to make sure that you have plus EV on both sides. Um, so it's something where your number is right in the middle. You think that you got re- the best of it early on, the number moved too far, which is, I mean, that, that happens pretty regularly. What, you know, an originator or a group will, will move a line, then the steam chasers pile in and it moves even more. Like look at, look at the right angle sports release releases as an example. And, and you would see an example of that every day, um, where, I mean, if you were able to get down on it really early, you can probably come back plus EV on the other side at a pretty wide margin. Uh, and I know some people who've been doing that with success for a long time as well. So um, I, I think that's a really good point. Plus EV on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to touch on is you shouldn't necessarily be playing a bet with the expectation that you're going to hedge out later. That is almost always um, a negative expected value move. So we see this a lot on like NFL Sundays where people put in, you know, three one o'clock games or 1 p.m. Eastern games and then a couple of the four o'clocks and then the Sunday night football, they always include it in saying always include the Sunday night or always include the Monday nighter because if you run the table on the other games, you can hedge out. And it's just crazy to think that that is like the mentality of some people. It, it sure, maybe it makes for some entertainment that you get a bigger bet on that last game. But in reality, like just don't include that game if you were going to hedge out of it anyways. If you wanted a bigger size bet and you wanted a parlay and you like that side and it was going to add entertainment value to have a play on that Sunday night game, then that's great and that's all fine and dandy. But to do it and then hedge out of that game, you're essentially not betting on that game. It's, it would be the equivalent as if you just didn't bet that game so or didn't include that game in the parlay. So that's something that kind of frustrates me when I see it a lot is people including them and saying, great opportunity here to hedge out later. Um, so let's bet more or adding an additional two units on this game so I can hedge out later. Um, either don't bet it if you, if you don't want to, if you want to hedge out later, or I mean, 
Like uh, there's scenarios in which if you know injury news is coming or if you know something's coming, you know the line's going to move and you're only okay with up to a certain level of risk tolerance, then you might want to, you know, bet twice your risk tolerance, wait for the line to move and then, and then play back. But this is like a few and far between situation talking like tens of thousands of dollars and professionals doing this. But if you're just the average person betting with the expectation and need to hedge out right away, it's probably like you're, you're sacrificing a lot of money. It's, it's really tanking your expected value long-term and it's taking you out of the game. Like the, the more you lose, the less fun you will have long-term in this game. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think there's, there's like some edge cases that some people might bring up just in general, but that's not the point here. Like we're not speaking in absolutes where you shouldn't do this. And there are some like things here and there that um, potentially make sense. Speculation on an injury for Sunday night football and as an example where um, you're fairly confident that the line is going to move one way um, based off of news or something like that is is an example of a hedge case. But for the most part, the, the the same lesson ap- applies, right? I mean, especially if you're throwing a bunch of stuff in a parlay, each leg's a, each, not necessarily each leg of that parlay has to be plus EV. There are some examples where they, not every leg has to be. Um, like if you're playing provincial lotteries or state lotteries in the US or something like that, where you're throwing a bunch of stuff together. But for the most part, I think that's uh, a really important one just in general. I, I hate that just in general of like, I'm throwing it, this in there. We can, it'll create a hedging opportunity late, later. It's like, okay, just leave it out. And I mean, you don't need that opportunity later on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like you mentioned, it, it's not that all bets have to be plus expected value. We're not saying, you know, don't bet if it, if it's fun, if it's fun for you, go ahead and do it. Uh, we're talking strictly here in terms of making more money in the long run, keeping yourself in the game for longer. Uh, another easy one where people can save uh, a ton of money if they did want to hedge for whatever reason or if they did want to buy out of a game, let's say they're watching it and you know you don't think that team has it tonight and they might be up one nothing and it's a good chance to buy out. What I've seen a ton with within the recreational betting community, uh, you know Barstool Sportsbook, Bet365, a lot of these sportsbooks offer the cash out feature which for those who don't know what it is, essentially you can cash out of your bet at either, you know, a premium or at a loss, depending on the current score of the game. This is more for in-play wagering. Um, Sometimes it is good to cash out. Sometimes it's not good to cash out. You can, in theory, calculate this by looking at the live odds and potentially comparing live odds across a couple of books. So, you know, maybe open up bookmaker, have, if you have access to, other live outs that have different odd sets, then open them up and always do the quick calculation within your bet before you cash out. So like if the other team's going off at plus a hundred and they're offering you even money on your bet. So the same thing you placed it at, then you should in theory be at break even. If it's below that, then you can go ahead and use the, you know, the live odds provider and actually bet the game, bet the other side live and actually, you know, clean up more money and take home more money. So little things like this in betting are, are going to be huge in terms of preserving uh, your bankroll, in terms of growing your bankroll. And especially as people are learning and coming up in this business, uh, it's, you know, just a great tool to have is being able to look for small things like these that, you know, give you a couple percent edge here and there. The cash out feature is an interesting one because I think recreational bettors like really, really gravitate towards cash out um, for a number of reasons. One, they, they might see that their bet is losing pretty badly. They don't think their team has a chance to come back, even though there's always a probability of like almost always a probability of a comeback. So they just take their money right away and say, you know, at least I, I left with something instead of leaving with nothing. And they go and put it into another bet. Um, but the cash out feature, I mean, like it's it's designed by a sports book, no difference than, than buying points, right? Where the sports book has the advantage. They're not offering you a fair return on the cash out in general, uh, but they're offering it to you because they have the hopes of you clicking that button and just going and rolling those funds into another bet right away instead of waiting for it to settle later on. So there are inherent advantages to having the sport like for the sports book in offering that type of feature. Uh, and, and it's definitely overutilized by the, the recreational player, like without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're cashing out on a parlay or something that already has, you know, three or four legs graded, let's say a five team parlay, four legs graded. Um, this is a 
basically a time when the cash out feature is never going to be worth it. And 99.9% of the time, if you shop around book to book, you're going to be able to find a place that's offering the other team or the one leg you have left, the reverse side of that at a better price than what the cash out's offering you. And this is like, I'm talking like a difference of what could be five to 10% here in play. You're usually losing a few percent, two to five. But, uh, if it's a parlay leg or something like that, it's just a, or even a future bet, like they offer cash outs on, you know, your green Bay Packers, NFC championship ticket. And like, if they had gotten to that game and you can actually just bet a single game wager on that, the whole percentage you're going to be betting into in that market you're going to save so much money overall. And I I know people don't really care sometimes to save five, 10 bucks on something. I'll say, ah, it's $10, it's $20, it's fine, or it's a dollar. But when you compound this and and you're betting a lot and you're betting every single day, um, you know, like $10 in expected value a day, the end of the year is the difference for some people between having a positive season and and a negative season. For sure. Um, Just on the topic of cash out, Johnny, were you ever like, there were some real weaknesses with the sports book cash outs in the early going. Did, did you ever notice any of that stuff or take advantage? Yeah. Some stuff I did uh, early on was mainly in regards to cashing out near the end of a game. So it's, it's not a huge edge. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, you could cash out essentially as the clock takes zero and your bet was a loser and you could cash out on a, let's say a hundred dollar bet and you can get a dollar back. So, you know, nothing huge, but you know increments of that would obviously you know compound that edge but something like where the game is literally coming to a close your team is down like an nba game where they just fouled again and they're now down seven points with two seconds left and you can cash out for three dollars on your hundred dollar bet those are things that existed uh they've cleaned up but you could still actually find them around depending you should always check for little things like this what about you what did you find i'll tell you my favorite one uh this is I'm always looking for mini edges like this. They never really last a long time. Um, but for a while, you were able to cash out your bets. I'm not sure if sportsbooks still do this or not. I'm pretty sure they don't. But you could cash out your bets prior to the game going live. Um, at like most people would be taking a loss. It would be really stupid to do that because you know you place a hundred dollar bet and you can cash it out for ninety five before the game goes live. Well, you place a hundred dollar bet on. Uh, not a hundred. Let's say you place, you know, a five thousand dollar bet. Uh, I won't name the sports book, but at a sports book, you can then go and hit penny right before the game starts and move the line, and you could end up cashing out your bet for more than you placed it on pretty much any side at one point prior to the game actually starting, just by moving the screen at Pinnacle because those the other recreational books are just going to follow the screen at the same time. So they would offer you a higher value on cash out for a little bit. Since then, I'm pretty sure they've all changed their formulas and they've all changed like when you can actually cash out those wagers and what you can cash out. But there was a while where, yep, you could pick anything you wanted on the board, bet it, go hit it at Pinnacle, move the number, cash out on the other site for for more. But if you were doing this across multiple sites, um, you could you could take a pretty good um, take back on that. Yeah, that's awesome. See, that's something that is really, really cool and clever. It goes more next level. Um, it's know. it's grinding peanuts though. Like it, it's literally put investing tens of thousands to to grind out like a small small win. But it's like an edge, and it, it adds up. And there's really not a whole lot of risk uh, in those situations. So that was that was a fun one for a little bit. Yeah, there was a couple scenarios where I. Uh, at some recreational books, maybe a year or two years ago, uh, had bets in that, and anytime it would move, anytime the line would move against me, um, I would be able to cash out of that and then rebet it elsewhere and still be plus EV. So that was something that I did for a while. Obviously, you never want the line to move against you in this game, but uh, it's still going to happen. And realistically, like that was a, a fun thing, but I'm, you know, since don't play at many of those sports books anymore. You're going to get ripped on by the American followers for your usage of the word uh, against, which I've now switched to. What am I saying? You say against, which is very Canadian, which is something that I I honestly always said, and uh, my Periscope followers would let me know. And I just kind of 
tried to practice not saying it and use against, and now I I naturally use against, uh, which sounds weird now that I'm saying it, but it's like become my my regular nomenclature now. Okay, well, I gotta. I guess I'm sticking to my Canadian roots, but I'll I'll, I'll get to it. Uh, anything else on on the the cash out feature? Anything else with hedging? Any cool stories you might have? Biggest hedge? Anything like that? Yeah, I mean. I was a recreational better. I for the majority of my betting career, I have would have considered myself a recreational better. Like I lost money for a long time when I was younger and even when I was trying to win money by thinking I was some sort of sharp, I was losing money. So I I've had all sorts of hedges in the past. Um you know the the I often uh use the hedging is for gardeners uh phrase to people who ask me about hedging in general, which I will credit that to a, an old coworker of mine, Gabriel Morenci, who I used to work with at the score, who would always see me hedging these these games and these outrights and be like, what are you doing that for? Just let it ride. Hedging is for gardeners. And I actually really like that. And I say that now because it it, it like rings true, sort of, um, just learning from past mistakes. But um, I think like a good example to highlight just in general is, is uh, Ed Teach with the, the Bucks future. Um, I mean, we don't know that he didn't hedge that, but from what I understand, he didn't. And there would have been a ton of opportunities along the way where he could have taken less expected value or made a bet that that was minus EV to ensure that he got something out of that wager. Uh, now, obviously he's in the financial position to be able to say, you know, screw this, I'm going to let it ride. And a, a lot of people would have taken money right there. But, um, I, I think that's just a good example of like, Everyone along the way, like, you should hedge this. You you should bet the other side. There's no way they're beating Green Bay. There's no way they're going to beat Kansas City in the Super Bowl. And, like, this is sports. There's n- never, like, a no way such... There's no... There's always a probability of a team winning. And um, I think he identified value in the early going. There's probably a number of scenarios where he could have um, split his risk. But he said, I'm in a position where uh, I don't need to. And, uh, I, I mean... Whatever you think of Ed Teach, you know he he does get ripped on and gambling Twitter sometimes and and whatever. I, I just think that's like a very savvy, um, you know, he's pretty savvy, pretty smart, better in the way that he approached that entire situation. Yeah, I agree. I I don't know him personally, um, but in terms, it's like you said when when the money's there and it's life changing money and it's a different scenario. Like if you stand to make, let's say, you know, five million dollars on a huge future. Uh, and if you lose that money, your, your bankroll might be a hundred grand and you can make it two and a half or maybe 2.4 and you could burn some expected value on that. You know, it's, if it's life-changing money and it's going to change the way you can operate, then it is, it is a plus expected value move to take that money. Um, I even related sometimes to like a, to cut, like if you're, if you're starting a startup and you know, your startup gets an offer for. billion and you think it's worth $11 billion, then you can, you can take it or you could hold out. And if you hold out, it might be worth nothing. And it's kind of like, well, yes, I'm literally losing out on $7 billion in expected value, but it gives me the 4 billion. It's, it's a different mentality. And there's a way in which I would, there's scenarios in which I would accept that offer. And there's scenarios in which I like wouldn't accept that offer. I think it playing it out in my head, obviously I've never been offered 11 billion for anything, but uh, you know, maybe one day. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I experienced this personally for myself last year. Um, you know, for those that don't, I'm, I'm not just patting myself on the back here, but I, th- I think it's pretty common knowledge that I had a, a, a pretty big score on the Tampa Bay Lightning to win the Stanley Cup last year, uh, as I bet them a couple times over the course of the year. It was significant amount of money for me, but like I could, it was a situation where if they didn't win, I would go to bed at night and I would sleep just fine and say, you know what, like I did the right thing type of thing. And I didn't hedge off of that in any scenario over the course of the playoffs in general. But the most important thing is that it it, it is a matter of personal preference. Like, I, I'm very a math driven, like probability driven just in general. I understand what I what I need to do in the long run to win, but had that number been double what it was that I was going to win, uh, there's probably a number of scenarios where I would have hedged it along the way. Um, and that's not necessarily the quote unquote right thing to do in that situation. It's, it's not. Um, but I mean, sometimes you... <laughs> 
like we're living, we're living lives here. Like when are you going to, sometimes you're not going to get that opportunity again. Maybe you're not someone who regularly places futures bets, and this is going to be your only one where you can potentially cash in. I completely understand a hedge in that scenario. So it's very situation specific. Um, and I, I hope we've at least provided some guidance in, into like things that we look at in general, but what I do is going to be different from what you do, Johnny. And, and like I said, different from what anyone else might do in that scenario. And I, I think you, the most important thing is, is making a decision based off of all, all the data that you have in general. I mean, that's, that's, that's my philosophy in life. Fair enough. Uh, I guess let's close it off with that great topic. If anyone um, has any cool stories about hedging, you know, let us know. Or if you know any questions in regards to our opinions or anything here, love any feedback on this. But uh, I think it's time to move on. It it is. I just want to say one thing, and and what I'm really interested in because you always hear the great stories of people who made a great hedge, like oh, I, I hedged out of this and I I got I won this amount of money. Uh, on a bet that would have returned zero, but you never hear the other side. And I'm interested if people do have those stories where it's like, I made a massive mistake by hedging. Like I cost myself $50,000 by hedging out this future. And not a lot of people are willing to admit that sometimes, but I'm kind of interested in those stories and specifically what it was in general, because I have those personally uh, from when I was younger. Uh, I can't remember exact teams, but I'm certain that I cost myself a lot of money hedging out bets when I was younger um, rather than letting them ride. Yeah. Let's see if, if anyone has any stories like that, it's probably harder, harder to admit that versus, you know, admitting that you hedged and you're, you're, you're all good, but, uh, okay. So let's hop into, you know, the next topic for today, which is going to be the, the ever popular red hot smoking hot NBA top shot and NFTs in general. So quick story, um, productivity in the bed stamp office hit an all time low yesterday. And it led my uh, business partner, uh, Julian, to basically inst- like to state that there's a strict policy, no NFT buying for 24 hours. That came into effect yesterday morning and uh, is currently still in effect for, I guess, until the next NBA Top Shot pack drop. So we, we, we've, been, uh, we've been all in and kind of like, you know, just soaking up the, you know, Twitter verse and how they're, you know, going nuts over it and also the platform. So wanted to get your thoughts real quick and then we can share kind of like where we, what we think of this thing. I, I think perspective is important here for one. And, and I think it's very important for me to share the fact that I was not an early adopter of Top Shot. Um, I, I, I read the, the Jonathan Bales article, uh, the Lucky Maverick article that he posted months ago, Digital Assets. I loved it in general. I, I think very highly of uh, of Bales. Um, I've only met him once in my life um, in Boston, but generally, like a very sharp person, you you could tell this this guy knows what he's talking about. And I read that article, and I was like, this guy is he's onto something. And just naturally, as as being me, and like I don't I don't want to make excuses, but like. I didn't feel like it was a rush to get into anything right away. Like I could just sit on my hands, keep going about my 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 daily life and and explore it down the road. Um, then a good friend of mine, Preston Sports Cheetah, started getting involved and tweeting about it more regularly. And I'm like, okay, I got to make some time at some point to do this uh, or or check it, even check out the site. I just never did. Um, and in hindsight, what a mistake. Um, so I I I know I need people to know that going in. I didn't really capitalize a whole lot on it. I did end up staking someone for a small amount of money and they like five times did, uh, which we were splitting. I had them on a free roll. Um, but aside from that, I started buying up some cards a couple weeks ago, um, started joining the pack drops a couple weeks ago, really started digging into it a couple weeks ago. I love the idea in general, but I fear for what it will become. Like I fear for what the ecosystem has already become, which I'm, I'm like, I grew up on collectibles. I collected baseball cards. I collected hockey cards. I collected Pokemon cards. I collected pogs. I collected crazy bones. Like, but I did them never to make a buck. It was more so 
because I, I just wanted to collect them. Like that was something that I was passionate about. And I think the current top shot ecosystem is less than 1% of those people and 99 plus percent of people who are trying to make a quick buck. And I think that that's very, very dangerous and something that can collapse at any second. Um, so I'm still going in on the card drops in general, because like, why wouldn't you, you can spend $9 on a pack and you're guaranteed to get like at least a hundred dollars worth of cards, if not way more. So from that perspective, it's very, very low risk, but like dipping in the marketplace, buying, you know, I've already made them. I already have like a portfolio of $20,000 worth of cards. And it's like, oh man, I don't think I'm going to recoup that at any point. Um, so that's like just my, my lens in it. I really wish I was in there early because you're laughing. I'm not, I'm still interested in the space in general, but I think there's going to be like a massive correction at some point, uh, to where like everything just comes down to somewhat of a realistic price. Yeah. So great points there. I'll, I'll start by, I guess, telling my experience with it. So I, I also, you know, um, first heard about it by, by reading that same lucky Maverick article. And I mean, man, I was like, I'm, I'm super into sports memorabilia and sports cards in general. Uh, and I really, really love the principles and kind of like idea behind NFTs. So as soon as I read that, I'm like, I got to get in right away. I, um, I, I did get in, um, relatively early, but not re like when I say relatively, I mean like a month ago, uh, but not in the way that a lot of people did and capitalize. So we were just buying up as many packs as we can and just trying to enter the drops, but it was still competitive at that point, nowhere near what it is right now. Right now it's, there's like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people trying to get 5,000 packs, uh, prior, like even just the, the cool cats drop, there was a lot more packs and a lot less people. So it's, you know, much higher chance of getting one and a sim similar kind of thing. Like you would put in your 1499 and your packs instantly going to be worth like what would have been at the time, a minimum of let's say $300. And since I think any cool cat pack, even the worst possible pack, you're over a thousand dollars in value right now. So we, we kind of looked at that stuff, but it was, I mean, the money back like last month was there to be made in the marketplace with pumping up cards. I will say though, like the challenge I have is that it's fake value right now, right? Like you're just comparing it to other listings. That's like what people are listing it at. You're not really comparing it to what it's necessarily going to sell for. Like people saw, for those that didn't see, you can check out my Twitter at Rob Pizzola, but I posted my, um, earlier this week, my experience of a pack drop. I got a pack and I opened it and there was three cards in there and I had no idea what they were worth, but I saw the OG Ananobi. Um, I don't even remember what card I got. It was like, um, no, it wasn't an assist. It was like, um, not, it wasn't dribbling, but like what they, uh, what are the, like the dribbling card? I don't know. I can't even remember off the top of my head, but I saw it. Uh, and I saw the serial number, which was a single digit serial number. And right away I clued in, and this is from talking to you, Johnny, because you're the only person that I knew that, that, but like the low serial numbers have more value. So I go and I check the marketplace, uh, and like all of the single digit serial numbers for this, this card are being listed at $3,500 or more. I'm like, wow, that's great. This is like, this is a $3,000 card. I, I spent $9 on this pack, but it's not like I can list it for $3,000. No one's going to buy it for $3,000. Like, I, I don't want to say no one's going to buy it, but the chance of me actually selling that for $3,000 is minimal at this point. Like, this is what I'm seeing in the marketplace right now. And I, I believe me, like people who know me, I am a data-driven person. I have gone through hundreds of thousands of transactions on this site to see if I can notice trends, what cards are selling for and whatever. I'm not selling that for 3000, maybe a thousand. If I list it at a thousand tomorrow, someone buys it because there's perceived value there relative to the rest of the cards that are in that, um, same price range. But aside from that, like it's, that, that's why I'm calling it fake value for the well, time being. In terms of that stuff, like there's right now, I think, um, an inefficiency in the top shot marketplace where the single digit, double digit, triple digit card serial numbers, or, I mean, we call them cards, moment serial numbers are 
being significantly overvalued. I'm just comparing that to how those typically fare on the regular, like traditional sport card market. Like typically number one of is going to be very valuable. And then the last print will be a little bit more like less valuable than number one, but more valuable than the rest. And then if there's a Jersey number of a player that'll typically even let's say, you know, any Jersey number player will be in the middle of those two. So realistically outside of that, in the regular scorecard market, there's not a significant, significant difference between card minted number nine and card minted number 150. Got it. Uh, whereas in, and it's still a difference. Obviously the lower serial number is going to be worth more, but in reality, it's like peanuts in the scorecard market. And then in the top shop market, you see like, for example, that Ananobi you're mentioning at nine serial number, people are listening for 3000. I think that's that's just crazy. Like that, that's not going to sell for 3000. There's cards being listed for like 10 K or whatnot. But I think we're, if we take a step back here, like you paid $9 for that pack, that Ananobi is going to be worth minimum a thousand. You got two other cards. You get three cards in the pack. The floor right now for a card is about $18 us. So, uh, you, you do lose a little bit 5% commission in the marketplace, but you're almost guaranteed to 10 X your money, the worst possible pack you can get is maybe like, you know, let's say a four X or a five X of your money. Uh, it really is like a lottery right now where you don't even need to pay to, to join it. You just need to stand in line. If you win the lottery buy the pack, enjoy. So that's, that, that's the fundamental, right that's the fundamental problem with it though, Johnny, like if everyone who's buying a $9 pack is getting at least $50 worth of cards, there's a problem with how that marketplace is working. Like it, it, everything is artificially inflated. And and that's the thing for me that that turned me off. And again, I, I don't want it to make I don't want to make it seem like I'm bitter. I'm really not. It, it's gonna come across that way. I don't care what people think, but I, I'm really not bitter in any sense. But like my first strategy on the site was just to pick off what I would call low-hanging fruit where there was a pretty large delta between the lowest asking price and the next lowest asking price. Because if you if you scoop a card that's $2,000 and the next lowest is selling for $3,500, you've now somewhat artificially inflated the, the price of, of those cards, right? Like I bought a Nikola Vucevic card for $2,200, which... Uh, I think is like selling for 3,600 right now. And it's like, oh my God, Nikola Vucevic card selling for like 3,600. But that was the first strategy, but they're not going to sell. Like none of these cards have any volume after the fact because like what's happening here to me is very, very clearly coordinated pump and dumps. And when I say that, I'm talking like 25 to 50 accounts that are all buying up the same cards at the same time and artificially inflating the prices. They all list them for much higher than that after the fact. And people see the volume on this card. They get excited. Like, oh my God, there's been like 40 transactions of this card in the last four hours. Like this is the hot card. And these groups are making a ton of money off of this. Whereas everyone else I think is just going to be like really left holding, you know what in their hand when all is said and done. Uh, scooping up these cards at at inflated prices, which they perceive to be hot cards or or cards of value. So that's what I'm seeing in the marketplace right now. I I love the Top Shot idea, like I love it. I think the execution of how it was brought to market is horrible for its for its sustainability. Not horrible for the buzz that it's getting now. Like players are talking about it. Um, you, you have players talking about it. You have influencers all over it. Like there is a ton of buzz. You have 10,000, you know, hundred thousand people waiting in a queue just for a, a pack drop. The, the website doesn't work because they can't support the load of the people there. There's a lot of good things, but it's hurting the sustainability of it long-term because at some point there's going to be a massive sell-off and it is going to be ugly and tons of people are going to lose a lot of money, even like middle adopters, I would say, are going to lose a lot of money. And uh, I think it's just going to hurt the product in the long run where no one's going to want to get involved again. I love the idea. I just would have executed it uh, in a, a much, much different capacity. So I don't know if I agree with that 100% in terms of the the value there. Like we're still in such an infancy stage where of, of like total 
NFTs and the value of like, you know, digital collectibles, if you want to call that an industry. So like, I think right now, if people want to get involved in Top Shot, the packs are definitely a surefire way to get in involved without a big investment and be able to realize a multiple of your investment right away. You could even potentially buy a pack if you get one, sell off one card, recoup your entire investment, and then try to you know hold some cards if, if you wanted to minimize risk and things like that. But I mean, for me, I think the one difference when just comparing this to the regular card market and the regular memorabilia market is the caliber of players matters a lot in the regular sport card market and on top shot it seems to not matter at all so for example holding like the lebron james cosmic which is the best lebron james card um on the platform right now one sold a couple days ago for two hundred eight thousand. um i forget who bought it but so just a just a question i don't mean to interrupt you johnny but like I, i've noticed that the max is that you can list for is two hundred fifty thousand right now yeah, I think I, I read that that's changing. I'm not sure when. Because I was going to uh, say, why buy a $208,000 card if you can only list it for two fifty and there's a 5% commission on it? So I would assume that that max is going to increase at some point. Yeah, in theory, that would obviously have to change um, on the platform. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. But uh, but yeah, so something like that where it's like in, let's say, a year or five years down the road where uh, digital collectibles as a whole industry grows, the first like legendary LeBron James card on top shot is going to be worth, you know, more money than it was paid for today. And that's just like, if the platform grows and if the industry grows, regardless of whether this NBA top shot current boom is a bubble, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, maybe it's source the moon. So I think like still like, you know, good assets appreciate and, and, and that's like a rule with any industry almost. So I'm, I'm okay with holding good quality cards, some of the rare cards, legendary cards, looking at the serial numbers and getting cards that aren't mass produced. Um, even looking at like the regular sport card mar market, like a base card uh, is typically not valuable, but the first edition of that or the first ever minted, first ever printed card is valuable. So you look at Pokemon, for example, another market that's hot right now, the first edition base Pokemon set, is hot right now? Like cards are hot again? Oh, insane. Insane. I didn't even know that. Like, I I was a like I was a diehard Pokemon guy. That would have surprised a lot of people. Like, it's if you had first edition cards, you should check. You should definitely check them. My, my, I'm I'm almost positive my dad threw them out. Like, I I think I left them at my parents' place for too long. After I moved, one day I just went back to my old bedroom at my parents' place and just stuff was gone. Like, I I, I don't know if it's there or not, but like I had I I had some like good holographic cards. Probably not worth a ton. I doubt I had anything worth like a lot, but I had a complete set that's probably worth like 500 to a thousand, something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean the, the rare cards right now from like the first edition stuff are, have appreciated so much that they're into the, you know, three, 400,000 for the most rare card. I think the Charizard is the most rare, but anyways, it's not, I'm not trying to get into like different markets and go down the rabbit hole, but all I'm saying is like in general, uh, if it does boom, the good quality stuff should still appreciate, uh, where I see potential, like, again, it's inefficiencies right now is the cards that are, you know, serial number three and people thinking that that's super valuable because it's a single digit card and, you know, a Demantis Sabonis, uh, layup for serial digit number three is going to be valuable long-term. I mean, base set series one could be long-term with the platform, but overall, as they print more cards and as more things come into the marketplace, uh, the common cards in theory do go down. So I wouldn't want to be holding like many commons right now, but I could be wrong. It's just an opinion and it's just like something I see in this. Well, that's interesting because like, I think you're, you're taking the approach that what's happening with actual like physical NBA trading cards is going to happen eventually in the digital market. So like there's some logic there to me, right? That at some point they will be, I don't want to say interchangeable, but we'll start to see that what's happening in the physical world makes its way over to the digital assets. Correct? That's kind yeah, of- Yeah, I'm saying like right now, NFTs, I believe in, like I, I'm a big so do I. in NFTs. I, yeah. I'm just saying like in terms of this particular, like when I compare- two markets, I see differences in the NFT market, but not necessarily in relation to the fact that it's an NFT, just in the relation to the fact that like, this is essentially still a sports collectible platform, similar to how 
upper deck releases different series of cards and how the ones that are, you know, the only difference here is that like in the sport card industry, like the condition of the card is, is a significant value add or decrease. So like having a, you know, PSA graded 10 versus a nine is going to be a huge difference in value. Whereas online they're all, I guess you can consider they're all 10 or they're all one, they're all standardized. Right. right? But outside of that, the principles should hold true and cross over between different, like within the sports collectible space. Uh, the NFT portion of it though is, is like amazing. I'm, I'm like blown away with how like much potential I think it has. We can talk about that a little, like what, what do you think about just NFTs in general? I, I, so here, here's what I believe will happen. I believe a ton of money will leave the NBA top shot marketplace and move into other NFTs where people will try to be early adopters of those. Uh, I'll give you a personal life experience of mine, but I remember I was a pretty early adopter to Bitcoin. I ne I've never purchased Bitcoin. Like my original purchases uh, or the original way that I acquired Bitcoin was not me actually buying it. I, I was up a bunch in gambling winnings and someone had to pay me and they're like, oh, well, you take Bitcoin. I'm like, what the hell is Bitcoin? And they kind of walked me through it. And I'm like, uh, okay, like, can we do half Bitcoin, half cash? And they're like, okay, sure. So I ended up with like 20 Bitcoin at like $400 or something like that. Um, and then I started seeing it appreciate in value and appreciate in value. I started to learn more and more about it. And I became just a believer in Bitcoin in general, but it got to a point where like everyone was trying to figure out what is the next Bitcoin. And I remember like a friend of my, I vividly remember being in Nova Scotia and I, I was with a friend of mine and he's like, I'm, I'm putting $25,000. And th this guy like works like a $40,000 job, putting $25,000 into Ripple. Because like, I think this is going to, going to be the next Bitcoin. And I look into Ripple and I'm like, this isn't even a decentralized, like current, this is, this is not even a crypto. Like how, this is a, a complete waste of money. And I don't know, six months later, it was 20 times the value that he put into it. He made a, a, a ton off of it. And I, I just think that's the day and age we live in now. Like, I don't think people care that much about the collectible side of it for the these digital assets it's more so how can i make money immediately and i think that's what's going to happen personally i think that's what's the most likely scenario is people get out of top shots and try to find or top shot i should say and try to find whatever the next top shot is going to be uh and there's a lot of different nfts right now which you can potentially get in that are a much much smaller um market cap i would call it and I mean, that's, that's just to me, the most plausible hypothesis or the most plausible, uh, course of action going forwards for people. And, and I think it diminishes the actual NFT itself, like, which is great in principle, but I think it's the people generally don't care right now, like about the technology aspect of it. So, he, so here's my, yeah, you make some good points there for sure, but here, here's my opinion on the whole like NFTs and for those listening who don't know what it is, it's essentially stands for a non-fungible token. Uh, it's just a way to put artwork online and store it for layman's terms, simple terms. So a way to put anything, sorry, like a, let's say a sports collectible or anything online and store it in a way where you don't have to physically own it. And it's, you know, everything's minted where it, there's a serial number to it. If you want to like call it that in layman's terms, and you know, who owns this by via, their account or their address or their, you know, digital signature. So essentially my, when I step back, it's almost like evaluating a sports betting market here. It's like, when I step back and look at this, what makes art in general, like physical art valuable. And if you ask that to like, you know, thousands of people, most people say, well, it's value is in like the history or the beauty of it. The fact that you can physically own it and touch it. And I think all in like that. Sure. For some people, but I don't necessarily see what makes, for example, like a Jackson Pollock painting or a huge, like some sort of piece of modern art worth hundreds of million dollars. When in reality, people say, yep, it's worth that much because it's beautiful art and you can hang it on your wall. I, I think 
most people who own those pieces of art anyways, they don't even hang them on their wall because they need to be kept in, you know, climate controlled facilities and they need to have like, you know, millions of dollars in insurance policies that they need to take out on these art, on these pieces of art. If they ever want to transfer them, they need to transfer them in, you know, secured vehicles and they need to, if cross border, it's like, there's so many different things that need to be true for you to say artwork is anything, right? So in reality, what I think personally right now, at least is the value of art is just that someone said it's valuable. And if you look at, let's say a traditional sports card, uh, a Mike Trout rookie card, you, you can say, yeah, but you have that physical card. You can look at it and touch it. But to the untrained eye, you can print out a fake Mike Trout rookie card, have that in the same kind of case. It looks the exact same. And you know, 99.9% of people are not going to be able to like, you know, decipher between the regular Mike Trout rookie card that's worth 4 million and the one that's worth $2 and 99 cents, unless they've got the correct tools and expertise and a microscope to put it under. So, I mean, I know I'm kind of ranting here, but I, I could be wrong. It's just an opinion right now. But the fact that people say like art is valuable because you can touch it or because you can hang it. I mean, most people who own those big, you know, multi, multi-million dollar pieces of art or sculpture, they, they store them in facilities. They hang replicas on the walls anyways. So in terms of storing art online and having it as a non-fungible token, it's much easier to transfer. You don't have to have like an agent, typically don't have to pay a big commission to do so. Uh, there's a lot less hassle that comes with it. You don't have to pay to store it. You don't have to take out insurance policies on it. Like overall, from a standpoint of just having a store of value online versus in person, it's, it's kind of like gold versus Bitcoin in a sense. Like it, it really is, I think, a huge, huge potential. I've I've never really understood art. I mean, it's interesting. Your commentary is interesting. Like, I just don't get it in general. Um, you know, a lot of people will buy art because it's going to appreciate over time, and it, it's it's an asset for them. And like, but why? Like, it, it's uh, I I I don't really understand. I think it's just like because somebody said this is what it's worth. This is what it's worth. Um, that that never like. It, it just doesn't resonate with me at all. I remember watching a, a, the, that Metallica documentary, uh, Some Kind of Monster, where their drummer, Lars Ulrich, is a big art collector. But he like, you know, he kind of made it seem like he he just likes to look at art in his house and whatever. But every year or two, he just gets rid of all the ones that he's tired of, sells them at auction, and the guy's making like more money off of art than he is making being like the drummer of, of one of the most successful rock bands of all time. Like it's, it's hilarious to me. Like I see that kind of stuff and like the, the pictures he's selling and it's like, part of it is because it was previously owned by Lars Ulrich. And a lot of people are going to pay for that just to say that, Oh, you know, I got a piece of artwork that, that Lars Ulrich hung up in his living room for years, whatever. I get that. But I, I don't know. There's just some of this that will, I'll never understand. I do think that there's a market for it in general though, like digital art, um, I saw an article today that like some piece of digital art sold for like 6.6 million, something along those lines that was originally purchased for 20,000, which is like, uh, I mean, it's mind boggling to me, but, um, I, I don't think like this is going away. I just think that it's going to find its way into like art might be the thing for the next two years. And then it might be, I don't know, punks or it might be whatever, like as a, as, as an NFT, um, or might be multiple at once. It's just for me a, a massive guessing game. But I do think in like almost every scenario, these NFTs are are going to appreciate over time. Good, yeah. And you mentioned with the Top Shot stuff that you know it's it is a, a mix, right? Like how many people are just on the platform right now, and they get so much overload. Like there's got to be millions of requests. Their servers are down. Like I don't even like, I can't even imagine what it's like for their development team to be dealing with all that stuff right now. Um, like well, they it's, it's they just a beta. Didn't expect this much volume. I know it's a beta, exactly. Right. And, and the thing is like, the, I, I think it's, I think it was hold, rolled out horribly. I mean, I, I've made that known, but like, I'm sure they're swimming with KYC right now. Right. No one can withdraw. Uh, I, I mean, how many pe- what percentage of people on top shot are multi-accounting? A ton for sure. But what I'm saying is like, you, you mentioned how many people are on the platform 
because they actually believe in NFTs and the collectibles and how many people are on the platform because they want to make a quick buck. Right now, it looks like the split is is the, the second. But think about just like in general, the market for artwork compared to the market for like just NBA memorabilia or anything NBA. Like the NBA only has so many fans. Artwork is like, it could be unlimited, right? Like anyone in the world could buy art. If you want to buy something NBA, you got to be like, you know, at least know what the NBA is. So when I'm looking at like the whole NFT marketplace as well, and just in general, like, I, like, again, I think NFTs are going to be really big. And I think there's going to be so much potential, a lot of money to be made here. I just, I don't know what the platform is. I don't know. Like you mentioned, I don't know if it's top shot right now. There's a lot of things I don't like about top shot. There's a lot of things I do, but like, in general, I'm just like so fascinated right now. And again, I'm not trying to be or come off as an expert. I, I know nothing about the artwork world. I, I had never purchased a high-end piece of art ever, like ever. I know a little bit about sports cards and autographed sports memorabilia because that's a passion I've had for a while. But like, I, I really hope this thing booms. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be looking over the next like couple of months. I know like, I'm already invested in some NFTs right now, but I'm going to be looking for like different projects that, fascinate me and that i think have a lot of potential and obviously it's like kind of like when crypto boomed as well like you're going to want to make sure you're careful to not just invest in every anything that just comes up on the marketplace because probably you know nine out of ten of these are going to fail but there, there could be potential for a few unique ones that come up yeah i mean i i think it's important to note and i'll just piggyback off what you said i'm by no means an expert in this space like I've done fairly well on investments in my life, but I've I've been lucky to be a part of the crypto boom in general. Um, that occupies the majority of my high risk investments. The rest I have is pretty much low risk, and I've I've been able to accumulate wealth over time in in that capacity. But it's just pure pure luck being a, in a lot of cases the right place at the right time. I think people are looking for that. That's I I, I mean, pe- people will read these stories and. They're going to say, you know, how can that be me? How can I find the NFT that is $2,000 and ends up being $100,000 in a few years, right? Um, And unfortunately, that takes away from the space in general, I think. And people really appreciating it for what it is. Um, Yeah, but I think that only takes away from the space in the short term. Like even crypto right now, like where would you say we are in the life cycle of, let's say, BTC? Um, so if, if it's a stage of like one to 10 with one being the infancy, probably like a three and a half. There you go. So even with crypto, where we had a lot, like a ton of pump and dumps and a ton of, and it still happens today, but mainly in the early days was just, that's all it was for, for a while with the altcoins. But like, like if you're saying even right now with crypto, we're still at, you know, a three out of 10, like. There, there's so much room to grow with this. And the, listen, like the reality is the vast majority of the world don't know what NFTs are. Don't eat like, and don't even care to like, most people don't even know really what Bitcoin is and how it works and how to use it. So it's really different when I'm looking at this stuff, like, like it's such an infancy stage right now. It's in such infancy stage. I think you're right. I, I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I'll say, I think, cause I'm never a hundred percent confident in anything. But like, we're we're at the the one one and a half mark right now. Um, if you if we're even there with NFTs, like it's this is the this is a, a, a sector that is going to grow. Uh, I firmly believe that, especially with the younger demographic in general. Um, yeah, I mean that, that's it. Like, I've had some ideas about NFTs already. Like, I would love to create music and sell them. Uh, like is digital tokens, right? I think I think there's a company doing that. Like again, I've I've been into this space for a short period of time, so like it's just something that's fascinating me right now. But yeah, there's a company doing that right now. Like um, I know the name of it, but I'm not gonna like you know I don't want to. That's fine. I don't I know mean, much about them, so I don't want to yeah. pump or anything like that. Just just right. in case. But uh, man, episode three, we are this one might go down the history books as an all time bad or all time good take. I, I'm oh it's true like. Yeah, this when is this will be like, when the LeBron top shots are selling for two point oh, five million next month. 
Well, at least if they um, at least if they tag it to old takes exposed, we'll at least get some some pub out of it, right? Like we'll get some listenership. It, it won't be all that bad. Um, I, I've been I think I've been old takes exposed like four or five times in in my life. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, I don't I don't mind. Like I don't I'm not I'm never gonna be right about everything. Like I I'm not going back and deleting tweets of of like bad opinions or whatever. Like. These are just what I thought at the time. Like, who cares? I don't, I, I think the old takes exposed account is brutal. Like I really do just in general, because like so many people will lose sleep over being tagged by that account. I'm not one of them. I honestly don't care, but like, these are just like, this is us typing our thoughts on the internet. Like, of course people are going to be badly wrong about some things. I think I tweeted this week. Why do I ever tweet? Um, and it was in like response to uh, something related to Top Shot, and I just like was thinking about it. I'm like, what is the point of me tweeting this? Like, this is something that will potentially only be used against me at some point in time. No one's ever gonna come back and say, "Oh, hey, Rob had like a great opinion on what he thought here." No one's digging up tweets from two years ago or you know six years ago where I said Johnny Manziel is never gonna survive in the NFL. Like that's not the one that's going to be remembered. It's the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers should sign Andy Dalton instead of Tom Brady. But like, <laughs> I mean, a lot of the a lot of the tweets on that account are tweets from people who, uh, like, it's a lot of the same guys over and over again, like Skip Bayless and stuff like that. But because he, like he's putting out insanely hot takes that are like off the start, they're already bananas. And then when they don't pan out, it's like, wow, remember when he said this? So you know, it's whatever it's cool twitter's twitter it's yeah well and and listen i i will say i'm I'm probably the biggest hypocrite there is out there because i can't i can't count on on my fingers and my toes how many times i've quote tweeted somebody else with a horrible take that was from like three years ago or something like that so i'm just as guilty and i mean that's just you get caught up in in the twitter culture i would say at times which is just a complete cesspool like it's the worst social media by far the negativity on Twitter relative to other social mediums is no, honestly, I, I think that's every social medium. I, I really do like, like TikTok's worse. Reddit is just like, it, it's, it all depends on what type of thing you're talking about, but uh, yeah, it, there's a lot of negativity. It's a little bit different when you have to use your, like your real face and persona, I would say like Twitter, you don't, I do. So everything I tweet is a reflection of me in general. I'm not just, you know, an egg avatar um, creating hundreds of accounts just to rag on people. But I agree. I mean, it's just a lot of negativity surrounding us. I'm a ne- very negative person in general and it rubs off on me. So, um, we've, we've de- devolved. This is the point where we know we have to wrap it up. I think done deal. All right. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and, um, we'll see y'all next week. We're going to try to potentially get some guests on, uh, down the road, maybe not next week, but over the next couple, um, Enjoy and uh, see you next week.